Hi, it's Kate. And welcome to the Small Business Millionaire Podcast, where we teach you the secret small business strategies that today's most successful entrepreneurs use to build profitable and growing businesses. And then the magic formula for creating personal wealth beyond your wildest dreams. So get ready to take your business to the next level with your host, who built and sold his 50-employee business and number one selling book author, investor, and entrepreneur, Jeff Weiner. I'm Jeff Weiner, and welcome to episode number 10 of the Small Business Millionaire Podcast. And in this podcast, I will be having a conversation with Andrew Henderson from Nomad Capitalist. Now, Andrew and I have a few things in common. For one, we're both lifelong entrepreneurs, and two, Andrew writes and talks about, among other things, creating wealth. But, and most importantly as it relates to our conversation, Andrew's company, Nomad Capitalist, helps business people, and as his tagline for his company suggests, go where they're treated best. Now, this next line I took from Andrew's website, which is, his company has helped hundreds of people go offshore, keep more of their wealth, and enjoy unprecedented levels of global freedom. I came across Andrew, his company, and his work a number of years ago, and I have been following him for a few years, not because I've ever considered moving offshore, but because I've appreciated how he's grown his business and his perspective on taxes and the nuances of what's involved in moving your company and wealth offshore. Andrew and I get into and start a conversation on how he's grown and is growing his business, and we then move into the areas around the why, how much does it cost, how much can you save, and what does it look like, and then the other areas around moving offshore. So without further ado, here's my interview with Andrew Henderson. So, Andrew, that was my quick introduction. Now, perhaps you can tell us in your own words who you are and what do you do? I'm the founder of, as you said, a company called Nomad Capitalist, which uh, is also a, a movement of sorts that encourages people to basically find the best places in the world for them. And what I realized uh, when I was about 12 years old is I got a great permission slip from my father who said, listen, uh, a lot of your friends are their parents are telling them they got to stay here because they are their parents' retirement plan. Their parents don't have a retirement plan. They, their parents don't have long-term health insurance. And uh, I remember having friends who, they, they're like, we got to stay in Cleveland, Ohio. We, we got to take care of our parents. And he said, listen, we're going to take care of ourselves. You should follow, if you're going to be in business, which I just decided at 11, 12, I wanted to do, you know, you should go where you're treated best. You don't have to stay in one city, one state, one country. And so I've you know, spent my life creating businesses. I started in the United States. A number of them uh, were remote businesses that could have been done from anywhere. And I finally decided about seven years ago, after many years traveling around the world to leave the U.S. for good, uh, later gave up my U.S. citizenship. And what I'm really trying to convince people to do is to look uh, and to take advantage of that same permission slip uh, to, to find you know the places where they are treated best because it can be where the tax is the lowest, it can be where's the government the most friendly to businesses, where are the uh, hiring practices and costs the best, where's the citizenship the best, where's the healthcare the best, it can be where's the dating, you know, where are the people that you like to be around socially, where is that the best? And so uh, for any of us, I don't think it would be very coincidental that all of those we're in one place, let alone the place where we were born. And so I'm really trying to convince people uh, that they should look for options and be diversified in our global world. 
So you mentioned something uh, a minute ago, which was um, you started businesses, I think you said something along the lines of when you were 11 or 12, or you wanted to be in business when you were 11 or 12. So what did what was your first business? What did you initially start as? So I remember uh, my, I had a sister who was adopted. I was 10, she was eight when she came over and I was always trying to sell her stuff. My mother was always getting upset because I was, I would sell like a magnet for 50 cents. I was created a magazine back when, you know, they made dot matrix printers. I was making kind of a neighborhood magazine and I went door to door selling subscriptions to that. And I would sell stuff for the school. And, and later I, uh, had a brief career at uh, about 12 years old selling uh, websites before like realtor.com existed. I would make a few websites for folks in the neighborhood and I would ride my bike up into the street seeing who wanted a website to sell their house. Uh, later I had, you know, typical you know, lawn business. So all kind of typical kid stuff until I was about 19 years old and uh, dropped out of college and uh, started a real business. And what was the real business? So I got into the broadcasting industry. My father's side hustle as a kid was uh, he was on the radio. He was on a talk show and it generated a lot of buzz. He had a political show that was, you know, this big afternoon drive talk show on our big station. But where he started uh, was he had a money show and he built an entire practice uh, largely of great, you know, high level clients for financial advisory services from this radio show because he was the expert. And that was back in the day when they paid you. Well, by the time, you know, I was dropping out of college, that model had gone away. Radio stations, AM radio stations in the US were were flailing. And so they were basically saying, hey, if you want to have a show, you can pay us. And so I went around and find all these, you know, tin pot, uh, you know, flea watt radio stations, you know, AM 1540, who had no money. They were on the verge of going bankrupt. And I said, you know, give me your inventory that you haven't given anyone before. And I will find people, I will create shows, I'll create on the money, I'll create the doctor is in and I will bring in different people to host their show and be the only insurance agent in Sheboygan to have a radio show and use that as part of their uh, their marketing. And so I ended up growing that business in a number of different ways, ended up working with a Fortune 50 uh, company, uh, some big direct response companies, big televangelists and kind of made that more of a, um, into a kind of an institutional business, eventually got out of the retail side, but very institutional. That was kind of the main business that I did. And I loved, I loved the radio business, but as we know, radio is dead and now I had to move on. So what year are we talking? I started in uh, 04, 05. And how many years did you run that for? So about 2012, uh, maybe a few lingering things till 13. Okay. And you sold it? I did. Uh, I'm, you know, when I say I exited the business, people imagine, you know, I made a hundred million dollars or something that wasn't what it is, but yeah, I, I sold up different pieces of it because there were different you know, parts of it. Yeah. And how large was that business at the end or when you eventually exited in 2012? You know, I honestly don't remember. I had a bank, a private bank I was trying to deal with. And they're like, what was your revenue? I'm like, I don't remember. Uh, but I mean, it was a business we did. I mean, into the eight figures in, in revenues so when we had, you know, an individual year, we'd have a couple, you know, seven figure clients. That kind of so thing. You, you had a staff then? Pretty small. There's actually one of the earliest times when I started experimenting with outsourcing in foreign countries. Uh, back in about 20, 2009, uh, I started hiring people in places like Bangladesh, Poland, et cetera, to be doing stuff like data entry. Or I had, I had an Indian woman for a while doing uh, calls and saying, hey, you know, we'd like you to uh, host a show. Or you called us about hosting a show. You know, how can we help you? And were you using tools like Elance or Fiverr or, or Upwork? Yeah. Was, I, I don't know if Fiverr was around. Fiverr never entirely resonated with me. But yeah, it was Elance. And then I guess that became Upwork later. And so you exited that business in 2012, and then what inspired you to start Nomad Capitalist? 
Well, I had been, I had had a number of other kind of side hustles as well, because that radio business at the end, I just put it basically put it on autopilot and I was doing other things. I did sell another business uh, in the home services industry. I had a couple of things which were kind of lukewarm. I gave one of them to my friend in the insurance space. And so basically I said, you know, I have all these different businesses under my belt. I had already been traveling the world a majority of the time. I built up to being gone a majority of the time. And I said, I'm going to go overseas and just be become the expert on what it's like to invest in Cambodia. I've been looking at Cambodia for about since about 2007. And uh, let me go and just be the guy who's the expert on this. And I'll do a little podcast and I'll write a little blog and I'll talk about what I'm seeing and I'll talk about how, you know, the U.S. is uh, and the West is coming to an end. And uh, I just wanted to kind of share my experience. I didn't really know exactly where it was going to go, but uh, I felt like I never fit in in the U.S. I don't really like it that much. I didn't really feel like being a pro-business person or just the way I personally act didn't really fit. And so I just wanted to share something different. I figured, you know, maybe they'll let me on the Today Show uh, and I'll be the guy in Cambodia or something. And so did you actually move to Cambodia at that point? No. So what I did was I just started basically doing a month at a time in each country. And it wasn't like I was going out and getting foot massages so much. Um, I wasn't really, I was trying very hard not to be a tourist, but I was arranging meetings. I hired a girl uh, to be an assistant in Vietnam who did a pretty good job basically getting me in and helping me bridge the gap in some of these countries where I would meet, you know, the CEO of one of the big, you know, international banks in that country. And I would ask them about what's going on. I would meet people in chambers of commerce and investors who moved from the UK to start a, a fund in that country. And just, I would basically go from country to country to country. And then I did that in Asia. Then I later did that in Europe. And I basically was exploring, you know, where it was that I wanted to be personally, but also, you know, figuring out which of these countries has the right vibe for business. And, and did you start this with the intention of a, a, more of a blog or were you hoping to find clients to help put uh, financial plans together and, and help them move offshore? I had sold, so I had sold you know, the radio business and then later this, of all things, a swimming pool cleaning business that I started kind of out of personal necessity and built up pretty quickly. And so at the point, and I had some cash uh, and I think I'm the kind of guy where uh, I figured, hey, I have all this cash, what to me at the time was a lot of cash. Um, and I figured, Hey, I don't really need an income. And so I didn't really focus on the income. I didn't really have a plan. I just wanted to do something different. I realized pretty quickly, I'm a guy who likes to spend income, not savings, but it took me a while to kind of put together uh, my first thing, which was, I ended up deciding, you know what? I like meeting with people. Let's host a conference. And I had a friend who would host a, a conference. I said, let's sell conference tickets and get some people that I've met together. And so how did you get your first client? When did, when did you officially say, I think I'm going to start picking up clients and, and moving yeah. into this line of work? I think early on, I kind of fell into the, you know, let's put an ebook together or again, let's host a conference, which was enjoyable. So we hosted three conferences. We had Peter Schiff and some other names. And we're talking so, what, your 2014, 2015? 2014, 15, 16, January were the three conferences. In that time, we were selling stuff. And I remember... Right before that third conference, I had a friend of mine came to join me on my birthday for London. And he was saying, you know, I know you're doing a little bit of work, like helping people with advice. We had the sign. We had a small membership club. It's all kind of hodgepodge. I said, listen, let me just advise you on how you can put together a system just to start taking people on and doing it properly and serving people who really need the help. Because it was, it was kind of just a hodgepodge of organic growth of someone reaches out. Can you help me? Okay, sure. It's this. It's that. But the problem was, it was people kind of dictating what they wanted. It was like, I need a Belize company. And we weren't as good at asking, well, why do you need a Belize company? You know, what are we trying to solve? And he said, you know, let's dial it in to actually help people solve a problem holistically, which no one else was doing. 
rather than just you know having a drive-through. What does that look like then? So if someone calls you and says, I need a Belize company, do you just say, we'll facilitate that process? Or do you start to dive in? Because at the beginning of the interview, you sort of said something along the lines of looking at where people are treated best, but not just with respect to finances, it could be all sorts of things. So do you sort of kind of dive into that holistically? Or do you do you immediately say, why do you need Belize? Why don't you go somewhere else? Or what's your perspective when someone calls you on something like that? Well, obviously, it's evolved over the years, and it's evolved doing hundreds of doing this hundreds of times. And also, I mean, I'm a consumer of this stuff. So I'm actively outgoing and getting second passports and, and residences and setting up you know, not too many companies, but I've got bank accounts all over the place. And um, so I, I experience what it's like. Uh, but also, yeah, I mean, I think each part has to be compartmentalized. And so the challenge that I see is someone will call a U.S. tax advisor. Ninety nine and a half percent of them don't know anything about international. But the small number of people who do, they look at it from a tax advisor standpoint. So they'll say, OK, this company works. But then I'll say, OK, if you set up a Belize company or a Seychelles company, very few banks are going to want to touch you. And the banks that will want to touch you have problems. And you may not be able to deal in U.S. dollars, or there may be delays receiving your money. And there's certainly no merchant account that's going to deposit into that if you're taking credit card payments and this and that. And so, you know, where your company is set up, yeah, you want a company generally that's a pretty zero tax or low tax jurisdiction. Um, you want to place it as a good reputation. So we kind of read the tea leaves, you know, these tax havens that have no requirements, they're, they're pretty much done. You don't want to be there. Certainly, we're trying to figure out right now, you know, what are the tea leaves in Hong Kong? But I also think that if your company's in Hong Kong, you're just using it as a flag of convenience. You don't have to live in Hong Kong to have your company in Hong Kong. And so I would look at, okay, where do you personally want to live? What are your qualifications? And I think each thing can be compartmentalized. So, you know, a, a country that you're going to live in doesn't have to be pro-business. Obviously, they should have a reasonable tax policy. And they should not be chasing people out. I found that pro-business countries generally are good places to live, um, or at least pro-foreigner countries. But you know, I don't think you need every country to check every box if you compartmentalize. So let's look at um, typical entrepreneur. Let's say someone has a 35, they're, they're maybe recently married. Um, they've managed to uh, put away a couple of million dollars and their business is making a half a million dollars a year. Would that be an, an example of a typical client that might call you? I think it's a, it's a, I mean, it's all over the map. I mean, someone might make half a million, they might, you know, all the way up to a billion, but yeah, that's a, that's a good example. Okay. So, so let's use that as a small business owner. They're doing fairly well. They're coming to you because they're paying, they're maybe living in the U S or, or Australia or Canada or wherever it may be. And they feel they're paying too much in tax. What is your strategy to help them um, minimize tax and find them a way of getting another passport and what are the things you ask and what types of countries would you typically recommend? Well, I mean, we, we have a lot of questions about, in there, by the way. Yeah, we have about I mean, three or 400 questions that are on the shelf that will adapt for different people that dive into, you know, different things someone could have. I mean, it really goes down to, we had someone yesterday selling stuff online, you know, where's the warehouse? Who's putting the stuff in the boxes? Is it third party or is it in-house? I mean, it can get as detailed as that. Um, you know, who's your customer service agent? You know, where are they located? Um, so there's a lot of things that go in. What I look at is I talk about my, my, what I call the tax-friendly quadrant. Okay? We're not dealing with Google or Apple or Microsoft. We're dealing with small business owners who they need to personally figure out their tax plan and they need to have their business figure out a tax plan. So where are you leaving? Where are you arriving on both the personal and the business front? And so I'm generally looking at um, 
places with other tax incentives. If you're making half a million dollars, you're not going to go to Switzerland and pay them a $400,000 flat tax. Um, that's not going to work. So I'm going to look at somewhere uh, with like a tax incentive, like a Portugal or a Gibraltar or a place where they're not going to tax foreign income, like a Montenegro or a Malaysia or a Thailand or a Panama or a Georgia. Or I'm going to go somewhere where you can set up a, you know, it's, it's only 5% tax or something like that, like a Malta. So there's lots of different options. But they're going to need to go and put a personal tax strategy in place to where they're not living in the United States anymore. Um, now, they can go back and visit, but they've got to make a commitment to be somewhere else or some other places. I have my trifecta method. Maybe they choose three different homes. And because they're not really in any of them in a substantial substantial enough amount, they're not going to pay in any of them. And then their company is, needs, needs to leave the U.S., needs to leave Australia. That's going to be set up somewhere else, probably not where they're living. I very rarely makes sense to put where you're living in the company in the same place. Uh, and so if you do that, you know, you might pay 0%, 5%. If you're an American, you can't totally escape the tax ban. You might pay 10%. Well, you can if you do what you did, I'm assuming, and, and relinquish your American citizenship. Right. And so that's, and you mentioned second passports. That's why people sometimes get second passports. For Americans, it is either to renounce your citizenship or to have the option that whenever you please, it's just ready to go. Um, I think for everyone else who's not American, we don't have a lot of you know Tanzanian clients or something who have bad passports. Most of our clients have good passports. But for everyone else, I think it's a factor of more countries are going to do this in the future, where if you're an American and you live overseas, you still have to file all the forms. You've got to report your bank accounts. You've got to tell them exactly what's happening in your Hong Kong or your UAE company. And so some people just say, you know what? I've had enough. I saw today uh, there's, a, there's a debate over if you're an American with business uh, in Hong Kong, how is that going to affect you because of these new sanctions going back and forth? And I say, you know, what do you want to deal with that for? So if you give up your citizenship because you've got another one, then suddenly you're free from all the U.S. rules, all the sanctions, all the restrictions, all the regulations, all the filings, all the forms. And how difficult is it to obtain? So you mentioned a whole bunch of countries. You said Malaysia, Hong Kong. How difficult is it to obtain a passport in, let's use an example, Malaysia, for example? What do you have to do? Very difficult. You could probably marry someone and wait around for 20 years. I would look at passports somewhere else. So Malaysia is a very open place, very pro-immigration. Pretty much anyone can, can, can come here on a tourist visa um, for anywhere from 30 to 90 days. Um, you can start a business. You can get uh, what's called an MM2H. It's currently suspended, but they'll reopen that. You put some money in the bank. They let you live here for 10 years. But you're not going to get their citizenship. So, again, we're going to say, where can I get a citizenship? Number one, if you've got an ancestor, some people have like an Irish grandparent or their father was Canadian or, you know, whatever, two, three generations back, you can do it that way. Uh, you can also make an investment. I've done that a couple times. St. Lucia, a number of Caribbean countries do that. You give them $100,000, $150,000. They leave you alone. Here's your passport in a matter of six months. If you don't want to commit to living somewhere like a Portugal for six months, nine months, a year, you can do what's called paper residence, where you set up a residence permit in a smaller country, generally an emerging country, and they don't really require you to be there very much to keep that residence active. And then just like any other immigrant, after three years, five years, seven years, you can go back and say, I've been a resident. May I have my passport now? I'm applying for citizenship. And so those are generally the most common ways that people will do it. Um, if you, we had one guy who we had just sold a hotel business for like $150 million and he was willing to go and invest five or $10 million in hotels in somewhere else. And so we found, uh, one or two European countries where the minister of, the, of finance was willing to negotiate and possibly recommend him for immediate citizenship by doing that because they want people to build hotels. So there's lots of different options, but those are just some of them. So does 
getting a second passport or opening and moving your head office to another country, does that necessarily mean you need to live in that other country? Or you just need you just get a passport and then you start filing taxes somewhere else? Or what are the requirements if you're an American? What does it mean that you're giving up? Well, so if you're a U.S. citizen, they're actually not so bad. They don't really care where you are. But what they will say is if you're not paying enough tax, they have this what's called guilty. So if you're not paying, you know, 10 and a half, you can pay it to us. And so there's a, lot, a whole lot of qualifications. But generally, I come back to the tax-friendly quadrant. Your business and you both need to leave and you both need to arrive somewhere. It does not need to be the same place. So you know, we run companies in a couple different places, none of which I live in. And those countries don't require that I live there to avail myself of pretty favorable tax policies. In fact, they actually discourage you in some cases. And then what I'm saying is if you just go and live in another place, like in Malaysia, for example, where they say, hey, we tax people who invest in our country. We tax people who are employees in our country. If you have money earned here, we tax it. We don't care who you are, citizen, non-citizen, resident, non-resident, anyone who makes money in Malaysia, we tax it. However, if you're making money somewhere else, we leave you alone. And so then you can start to put the pieces together where, all right, I'm not an American, so I'm allowed to leave my country's tax system. I have a company, let's say in you know Dubai, so they have their own restrictions, but it's not too difficult. And then I can come and live in a country that says, oh, Dubai, we don't even look at that. And that's how you start to make it work. So you gave up your U.S. citizenship. Do people necessarily need to, if you're a Canadian-American, do you need to give up your citizenship? If you're both Canadian and American? Well, no, if you have an American one or a Canadian one, for example, and now your clients come to you and you've facilitated the process of moving them overseas or or opening up uh, another branch location or moving their head office, do they need to necessarily give up their U.S. citizenship? So if you're not American, you're generally not going to. Um, I mean, certain people who are like Chinese, for example, you're not allowed to have dual citizenship. If you want to be honest about getting another passport, maybe you give up your Chinese one. But you know, by and large, everyone who's coming to me who's from anywhere but the U.S., I may be convincing them to invest in a some kind of insurance policy because you've seen in Canada, there was a member of parliament who now says, we want to have this U.S. tax system where no matter where you live, if you're Canadian, you pay. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a Canadian, you think, hey, that's the direction this country's going. Let me get one now. Let me just get started. Maybe it'll be cheaper if I get it started earlier. And that's my insurance policy. If they do it, I'll decide what to do then. If I'm an American, you know, I have some people who are doing cryptocurrency investing. They're doing day trading. They have a lot of capital gains. There's not a lot that they can do short of, let's say, moving to Puerto Rico, which they may not want to do. So they may just choose to expatriate. I don't always recommend it. I don't I don't encourage everyone to follow in my footsteps because it is a difficult decision. I have been overseas for a number of years before I decided I don't need to do this. I had almost never come back to the US. I made a point to avoid it. And again, I never really liked living in the US. I never really felt comfortable being an American or being part of the culture. And so for me, it was easier. But it certainly does make your life easier. And they're making the rules more difficult. Now I see Joe Biden wants to make it even more difficult. So it certainly makes your life easier. I asked you earlier, typical small business, $2 million in, in, uh, the, the, in wealth. Um, they're making a half a million, maybe a million dollars a year in taxes. How much could someone like that save uh, if, if they were to come to you? And what would it look like from a financial perspective? Yeah. So, I mean, my goal is to generally, I mean, as low as someone's willing to go, there's a couple of factors that matter. So again, if you're an American, uh, there's possible to pay zero. You know, let's say, for example, you're an American, but you're like me. I actually am 35 and recently married. My my spouse is not a U.S. citizen. They didn't live in the U.S. I wouldn't have wanted to. And so if I were still a U.S. citizen and I were married today, we could own a business together and I'd have a better 
position to be to be paying pretty close to zero. If you want to live in a place like Puerto Rico, you might be paying about 4%. If you want to go offshore, you're probably paying a little bit more than that. Um, for everybody else, you can pay as much or as little as you want. If you're a Canadian and you want to move you know, and, and live the life that I've done, you could pay zero. The other caveat is some people, they like to move to Europe. There are countries in Europe where they'll say, hey, for five years or 10 years or 18 years, don't pay any tax to us. But we don't like Dubai companies, for example. That's that's like on our gray list. That's on our black list. We don't like those. So you have to have a company in one of our approved jurisdictions. And that jurisdiction might charge you 5%, for example. And so you might have to pay 5% uh, in order for the privilege of living in Europe under one of their you know, tax exemptions. So you get to decide what you pay. There is a path for most people to zero. Of the places you've lived, which countries have you liked the most? Well, I think we all vote with our feet. Um, so I live in Malaysia. I have a home here, buying a bigger home. I like, it's kind of an up and coming place, the country of Georgia. I like on the seaside, more old school place, Montenegro. It's just kind of a relaxed place versus Western Europe. I think actually Colombia is a very interesting up and coming case study. I don't think it's a great place to spend the whole year, but I think it's a good place to be. I think Mexico City is one of the best cities on earth. And so what I practice is basically my global citizen sandwich. I live in places that are in the middle, like Kuala Lumpur. I then invest in up and more up and coming places like Cambodia, but then I keep wealth in a place like Singapore, which is more solid than anywhere else in Southeast Asia. So I like places that are developed, that are hidden gems, that are not dirt cheap or you know dirt roads kind of thing, but um, that are kind of off the radar. When you say you keep wealth, does that mean you have a bank account? Does it mean you're buying real estate or a little bit of both? Yeah, I'm generally not buying real estate in, in hyper-developed uh, markets. Um, Singapore, I don't think, is an issue on a regulatory standpoint. If you look at most EU markets, I just saw today, now Budapest is going to ban Airbnb, it seems. And so you know, any attempt to make yield in Europe, they shut that right down. That's why I wouldn't invest in it. So many requirements, taxes, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, for example, I've invested in Cambodia real estate for years. Yields are pretty good. Appreciation's good. It's had a 25-year track record of no recession. So I'm going to invest there, and I enjoy visiting, but I wouldn't live there. Singapore, on the other hand, I mean, I'm not going to spend $2 million to live in a shoebox. It's just not worth it for me. I can choose where I want to live. And so I will park money there. Maybe I'll do some, some stocks or some bonds or some REITs, and I'll, I'll have a great relationship manager or, or two to manage um, those assets. But uh, yeah, I don't want to buy real estate at 1% yield. Thank you so much for your time. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? So you can find us a lot of places. You can find us on uh, nomadcapitalist.com. We've written almost 2,000 articles we've, uh, over the last seven years. Uh, you can find us on YouTube. Um, just type in Nomad Capitalist. Uh, you can find our book, Nomad Capitalist, on Amazon, which is a good 270-some page primer on what you can and can't do and what the opportunities are. And I'd say those are the best places to, to start. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, and it was a pleasure speaking to you. Hey, great to be with you. Before you go, I want to let you know that I've designed a course called How to Turn Your Small Business into a Profit Machine in 60 Days. This is a step-by-step instructional course to teach you how to dramatically improve your business's profitability and put more money in your pocket. It follows the practices I used in my 27 years in running my profitable business. You can get more information on this course by going to thekickassentrepreneur.com forward slash courses. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Small Business Millionaire Podcast. You can download a free copy of Jeff's number one selling book, which sold over 50,000 copies by visiting the kickassentrepreneur.com website. 
Now be sure to subscribe to the podcast and please take a moment to write a review for our podcast in the App Store.